Last week we began a new series looking at the issue of fear. And I chose as our text what we're looking at today, John 14:27. Words spoken by Jesus the night before his crucifixion to his disciples. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In reality, I could have chosen any number of passages to serve as our text as the most frequently repeated commandment or command in the Bible is do not be afraid. For us, this command has, I think, special significance as we live in a culture of fear. Last week, we looked at the roots, or you might say the origins of this culture of fear. First of all, biblically, we saw that the appearance of fear in the world is found in the story of rebellion in the Garden of Eden. That when Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, they were put there so that they might learn certain things, that they might learn trust, that they might learn obedience. But when confronted with the test, they failed. And what we find in Adam and Eve in this story is what we find, I think, in ourselves and certainly in our culture today. Human creatures unwilling to be creatures. Human creatures declaring themselves to be self-created. We were made to live in community that would mirror the communal life of God, who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. We were made to image God, to live and to love one another in the pattern of God's living and God's loving. But the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, and their descendants since then, are not content with this status of having been derived from something else. Human beings are not happy with the privilege and the task that they have been given. That is to point beyond themselves, outside of themselves, to the one who made them. Instead, they were tempted and they gave in to the temptation of the servant, serpent. You will be like God. And as I mentioned last week, there's, there's a chasm, there's a universe of difference between being made in the image of God and the promise of the serpent that you will be like God. Instead of reflecting God and his light and goodness, human beings now see themselves as the source of light and goodness. The result is that we are unending self-creators, gods to ourselves. This comes from uh, Scott Bader Say's book, Following Jesus in a Culture of Fear. As I mentioned last week, it's a book I found to be of tremendous help in this series. He writes that it was when the first humans sought to be self-creators that they knew fear. Once human beings decided that they did not want to be in the image of God, but instead they wanted to be like God, that's when fear became part of their lives. See, we were never meant to be gods. If we think we can, then there is always that uneasy feeling that we will never be able to fulfill our divine aspirations. And so we are afraid of failing as self-creators. Because, in fact, we can only fail. We cannot succeed as self-creators. We fear death because we fail to see death as a gift that has been given by someone else to us. If we are not content to receive life as a gift, then we fear losing that gift. We fear God's presence, as Adam did, because God reminds us that we are not God. 
being sinners and living living in a fallen world, fear is a deep-seated part of who we are. And thus, we are told time and time and time again in Scripture, do not be afraid. Then in terms of the political roots, briefly to review, with the rise of the modern nation-state, in many ways, countries no longer had something in common, a common faith or a common purpose that would sort of guide them to say, this is who we are as people of this country. And the result is the glue that began to hold people together was, in fact, fear. Uh, Either a common enemy outside or the fear that if we didn't get along together inside, anarchy would result. I mentioned last week an essay, a famous essay written in uh, 1989 by Judith Sklar from Harvard called The Liberalism of Fear. And she argued that in the modern nation state, we do not seek or we are not offered what is known as the somum bonum, that is the highest good, the greatest good. Instead, what we begin with is the greatest evil because there's this evil and so we have to band together as a country in order to stand against this great evil. As a people, we find ourselves really focused and unified when we have a common enemy. Politicians seem all too aware of this and so both on the left and on the right, I would argue that when it comes election time, they play to our fears. They ratchet up the rhetoric to get us to vote for them so that we will be safe from a danger real or imagined. And it works because they get the people of their constituency on their side to vote for them because having voted for this person, I can now feel secure that that danger will be dealt with. And then the cultural roots of fear, since we live in a culture of fear, In this country, we can presume as Americans to hold very few shared convictions, stories, or practices. It seems perhaps the only thing that would unite us as a people is fear. We have no shared story, it seems. So fear becomes the story that we share. Since we lack a common political story, which can bind us together, um, well, fear is the glue that we look to. This is sort of an indication, I think, of where we are, not simply as a country, but where the civilization is and where the culture has gone. See, fewer and fewer people today, and trust me, this is difficult as someone who teaches history, fewer people today believe that history has a purpose, or that it has a story, that there is, in fact, an ongoing, coherent narrative. Um, And it's very strange, I mean, and and I tell my students this, that, uh, you know, when people feel liberated that history has no meaning, then I'm like, well, what did I go to school for to get a degree, a Ph.D. in history and something that has no meaning? But in modernity, I think, like it was back in Eden, the serpent says you can be like God's modernity. tells us we can tell our own story and that nothing that came before us really has any true significance. And as a result... People have no sense of belonging to a story. But as I mentioned last week, if there is no story, then there are no characters in the story. And as a result, people begin to lose their roots and sort of begin to free fall into what we find 
in our culture, which is, I think, nihilism. So we are surrounded by fear. I mean, we know theologically it is a part of who we are as human beings. Politically, it's what keeps us together as a people. Culturally, I think we are just, well, we are bombarded with fear. Either from politicians, from advertisers, from any other source. Fear seems to be what gets us. Well, if this is true, how can we as followers of Jesus live in such a culture? How can we be expected to obey the command, do not be afraid, when we live in a culture of fear? Perhaps another question we should ask is, why is there such a command? Why is there such a command, and so many times, do not fear, do not be afraid? Isn't fear a feeling? And how can I be expected to control my feelings? By the way, people express a similar sentiment when it comes to the command to love. And people would say, well, I find it difficult to love someone, and that's my feeling, and I can't order my feelings around. And so when I'm told to love my neighbor as myself, when I'm told not to be afraid, that seems somewhat exasperating, if not frustrating. I mean, how can I control my feelings? Well, let's ask, is fear, in fact, a feeling, an emotion? Well, if you Google it, you will find the answer in the affirmative. And I just took some samples. And if you know about Google, the things that come up first are not always the best. I understand that, but this is what came up. Fear is an emotion induced by a perceived threat which causes entities to quickly pull away from it and usually hide. It is a basic survival mechanism. Another entry. Fear is a powerful and primitive human emotion. It alerts us to the presence of danger and was critical in keeping our ancestors alive. Interesting. Our ancestors, and what about us? And then another entry, the primitive, complicated, essential emotion called fear. So there seems to be a strong consensus that fear is an emotion. But I find it interesting that in literature, oftentimes fear is seen in terms of the mind. This I've mentioned before in, a, in a, the series in Jeremiah, but uh, Frank Herbert's series, Dune. Uh, there is a sisterhood known as the Bene Gesserit, and they had what they called the litany against fear, an incantation, a chant that they would say to calm themselves. It would focus their minds, and in times of difficulty, if they said the litany of fear, they would be able to face danger with no fear. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Well, Dune may be a little old for some of you. So in a more recent novel, The Life of Pi, the main character does an aside on fear. I must say a word about fear. It is life's only true opponent. Only fear can defeat life. It is a clever, treacherous adversary, how well I know. It has not decency, respect, uh, respects no law or convention, shows no mercy. It goes for your weakest spot, which it finds with unerring ease. It begins in your mind. Always.
So on the one hand, we have those who say that fear is an emotion, a feeling. And then in literature, we find that there are those who say it is, in fact, something that begins in the mind, making it a mental issue. I think there's something to both. But let me pose a third alternative. What if fear is a moral issue? Some might object and say, no, Damon, it can't possibly be a moral issue because if fear is an emotion, how can one's emotions be good or bad? You'd say your feelings are not good or bad. Your feelings are your feelings. That's just the way it is. But think a moment. If we live in a culture of fear, what does all of this fear do to us? What kind of people do we become if we are fed a steady diet of dread? How does fear affect our moral lives? As followers of Jesus, we are part of a long tradition that teaches that character formation involves the proper ordering of our passions. Yes, our emotions. If we want to develop the virtues of courage and hope, we, must, we need to learn what to fear and how much we are to fear it and what we are not to fear. As we have seen, fear is a part of what it means to be fallen, and to live in a fallen world. Thus, the capacity to fear is inborn. You don't really have to teach people necessarily to be afraid. What you can teach them is what they should be afraid of, when they should be afraid, and how much they should be afraid. These things we generally learn as human beings. I remember once I was with my botany teacher who lived down the street and we were talking uh, out in the open and suddenly this big buzzing thing started going around and it looked like a bee. And so I, somewhat averse to being stung, um, so I was sort of ducking it, you know, hoping it wouldn't bother me. And, and my botany teacher, of course, said, oh, it's a carpenter bee. And I suddenly stood straight up and went, then I'm okay. She goes, oh no, it'll still sting you. And so I start, start ducking again. Um, we learn what to fear. Okay. And that is why some people are not afraid of certain things. While they're afraid of other things, these are things that we learn. What we find in the scripture is that our passions are not simply given, they are formed. So we can be shaped to feel passions in the right way, at the right time, and to the right extent. So we can, for example, rejoice rightly at the triumph of good. We can lament rightly in the face of suffering. And we can feel anger rightly in the presence of evil. But let's be clear. Fear is not evil. It is not a vice. It is not wrong to fear, as we will see as the series develops. But excessive fear or disordered fear can tempt us to vices such as cowardice or sloth, rage, violence. It can push us in that direction. At the same time, it can pull us away from the virtues of hospitality, peacemaking, and generosity. When I had finished my notes, I had not included this, and I decided to put it in because I found it very striking. 
He relates a story that he got from Walter Brueggemann that is told of a German Lutheran pastor. His name was Martin Niemüller. He courageously opposed Adolf Hitler at a time when many Christians were joining Hitler's movement. He writes that as a young man in 1933, Niemüller went to meet with Hitler as part of a delegation of leaders of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Niemüller stood at the back of the room and looked and listened. He didn't say anything. When he got home, his wife asked him how it went and what he had learned. He replied, I discovered that Herr Hitler is a terribly frightened man. I think it's an amazing insight that shows that disordered fear can create the opportunity and justification for the tremendous evil that followed. Fear is a moral issue in that it shapes the kind of people we become. And the kind of people we become has a lot to do with how we see the world around us. And how we see the world shapes how we act in the world. Usually when people think about ethics, we think of what is good, you know, what is evil, um, what is the right thing to do, what is the wrong thing to do. But I think where ethics begins, or it should begin, is what is going on. You see, before we can decide what is the right thing to do, what is the wrong thing to do, we need to ask ourselves, what is going on? If we believe, in fact, that this is God's world, and that God is in control, then I think it certainly colors how we see things. The way you see the world, reading the signs of the times, as we read it in scripture, is a moral act. In order to live well in this world, we need to know how God is involved in our history. But stop and think a minute. What if, in fact, we are unable to see God's hand in our lives or in the world around us? What if history does not seem to us to be the unfolding of God's plan, a divine purpose? It's simply one random act after another. What if, as many believe today, what if they see no story? Only randomness, chaos, and threat. Richard Niebuhr, who was, in fact, an ethicist, an American ethicist, earlier part of the 20th century, wrote that we see ourselves surrounded by animosity. Hence, the color of our lives is anxiety, and self-preservation is our first law. In a culture of fear, the answer to the question, what is going on, is, or tends to be, we are in danger. There is danger. If we accept this as the answer, and if we accept this as the dominant description of the world, then our lives will be shaped by self-preservation. And our moral vision becomes very much tunnel vision. Fear becomes sort of the ambient background of our lives. It's always there. It colors everything that we do rather than fear being the proper response to a threat, it's simply there all the time. We are told that fear provokes one of two reactions, fight or flight. 
That is, either we fight the perceived danger or the real danger and try to overcome it, or we withdraw and we flee from it. Thomas Aquinas, centuries ago, wrote that fear arises from the imagination of some threatening evil which is difficult to repel due to lack of power. We become afraid because we don't have the power to fight it. If we had the power to fight it, we would simply fight it and overcome it. But believing that we do not, then in fact we resort to fear. Fear is produced in part by our judgment that we are not capable of fighting off a threat. And so lacking that power, or imagining that we lack the power, we withdraw into ourselves. Aquinas called it contracting. There's a contraction that takes place. And rather than being, in a sense, communal and social beings, we suddenly become very, very private individuals, and fear is what drives us. Aquinas saw fear as causing a kind of contraction of the heart, is how he put it. By imagining future evil, fear draws us into ourselves so that we extend ourselves fewer and fewer times to fewer and fewer people. If we're Christians, if we are followers of Jesus, this is a major impediment. It calls us not to contract, but to expand. And not to limit ourselves to a few things, but to open ourselves charitably and generously to many things. But fear is the great temptation to make safety and self-preservation our highest goals. And when we do so, our moral focus becomes the protection of our lives and our health. Security becomes our new God. It becomes an idol to which all other things must bow. In the past, when Christians were asked, what is your chief goal? What is the chief goal of man? Christians have given answers such as friendship with God. This is from Thomas Aquinas. Or to glorify God and enjoy him forever, the Westminster Catechism. Today, I fear that many followers of Jesus would echo what we hear in our culture, that safety and security are the primary good that they seek. What has happened is fear has transformed safety into a virtue. That being safe is now seen as a virtue. What we find is a worldview that surrounds us that equates the good life with risk aversion. The good life is where you don't take risks. Oh, by the way, we admire people who take risks, but that's them. We'll stand on the sidelines and watch them do it on some reality TV show or whatever, but we'll stay home safely from a distance and watch them do it. As a result, when safety becomes this virtue, this almost primary virtue in our lives, it creates sort of sub-virtues, if you wish, or what Bader Say calls shadow virtues, like suspicion and preemption and accumulation. And what they do is they replace hospitality peacemaking, and generosity. The preoccupation with safety is a temporary solution. Um, As Americans, we want to be safe. We want to be safe from terrorism. 
And so let's be scared of the terrorists and there we will join arm in arm. But this is only a temporary solution. Think about it. Politically, we're all over the place when it comes to things like abortion, health care, poverty, war, sex. And Americans may disagree on what, a, what the good life looks like, a full human life. But I think most Americans agree on this. We want to be safe. Safety becomes the least common denominator of American morality. By the way, if, if there's ever any trouble and you want to cover something up, you say national security. And it's like, oh, okay, well, we can't talk about that because that is for national security. I'm sure we can all agree that we don't want to die. This common fearfulness takes on the appearance of a gift that creates a common goal. We, you know, we are going to stand shoulder to shoulder. But such unity is not only temporary, it is deceptive. Because unity created by fear is only passing. And so there is the temptation to prolong the fear, to keep the fear up, so that we will continue to be united. Because once that fear is gone, then what is there to unite us? In many ways, if you think about it in our culture, moral language has been changed. Um, Scott Bader say calls it medicalized. You know, we're afraid of being considered judgmental because people in our culture no longer say, uh, share the same morals. So rather than speaking to people about morality or goodness, like you shouldn't do that because it's wrong or it's immoral, we speak in terms of safety. In a permissive society, sexual encounters that are sinful, according to scripture, that are contrary to the biblical ethic, are no longer spoken against. They may be frowned on, but they're not spoken against. But safety is still a conscious issue. And so the new morality in our country is not, you know, the new immorality, I should say, is not fornication or adultery or homosexuality. The new immorality is failing to do safe sex. That safe sex becomes the new high morality of our society. If you think about it, why should one practice safe sex? Because the fear of disease, the fear of unwanted pregnancies. And so rather than saying this is what is right and this is what is wrong, the new morality is based on safety and fear. You should do certain things or not do certain things because of the consequences. Rather than recognizing the gifts of God that we find in sexuality, our society has taken these gifts and abused them horribly. But how do you get people to behave, at least behave so they're not out of control? Well, in a culture of fear, you use fear. And the gifts that God has given us now become something to fear. Our moral lives are shaped by fear when safety becomes our highest good. The result is we live timid lives. We don't want to do bold gestures. Instead of being courageous, we are content to be safe. 
Instead of being hopeful, we make virtues of cynicism and irony. It keeps us away from risky commitments. Stop and think a minute. I want to look at these briefly. The virtues of the ethics of safety, suspicion, preemption, and accumulation. This is what informs much of our culture today. Suspicion. Children in our society are taught, don't talk to strangers. And of course, we want to protect our children. But do we want them to identify strangers with danger? Don't we, as followers of Jesus Christ, want them to learn that hospitality is a virtue? That welcoming a stranger is the same as welcoming Jesus Christ himself? In a culture of fear, suspicion is a virtue in that we assume we are always at risk and we treat everyone as potential danger. Safety is promoted through fear. There have been various uh, campaigns. One is called Stranger Danger. You know, that any person you meet that you don't know is a danger to you. When suspicion becomes a virtue, this threatens family, it threatens communities, it threatens national political life. After the exodus in which Israel had been rescued, had been redeemed, liberated from slavery in Egypt, they were told that when they were in the promised land in which they were there, they would be confronted by threatening strangers and dangerous enemies. Don't forget that. And yet this is what God told them. When an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat them. The alien living with you must be treated as your native born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. We see this practice in the life of Jesus, that he ate with the foreigners, the aliens, if you wish, of his day, sinners and tax collectors. And yet even his disciples didn't get what he was doing. Amusing is the right word, but there's a story in Luke chapter 9 in which Jesus and his disciples are going from Galilee to Jerusalem and they have to go through Samaria and they stop in a particular Samaritan village. They are not well received. And so James and John had the solution. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. We need to recognize that there's a tension between God's calling to welcome the stranger the outsider, even the enemy, and the counter-tendency in a culture of fear to exclude and destroy those whose differences are perceived as a threat. Suspicion can look like a virtue when people are afraid. The second shadow virtue is, if you wish, preemption. This can take the form of fight or flight, Flight takes the form of fleeing from someone before they can flee from us. Um, I think Bader say, says it's like when you're in high school, you break up with someone before they can break up with you. You know, that type of thing, which sounds very immature, and I think it is. But this is what happens in a culture of fear. And in a culture of fear, preemption can keep us from making a commitment to a relationship a meaningful and lasting relationship because we are afraid that the other person, in fact, may leave us. 
we are still in the afterglow of Ben and Becca's wedding and their marriage together. But if you think about it, marriage is an act that challenges all our fears. Our fears of abandonment, rejection, and failure. To marry is to confront those fears and to refuse to allow them to determine one's relationship. Marriage says, I will face my fears. That's flight. Fight, on the other hand, is violence, where we decide, I'm going to hit you before you hit me. What's ironic is, it's only after the fact that you can find out whether or not they were going to hit you in the first place. And I know that it can be frustrating. With Neighborhood Watch that I was with for years and years, we would oftentimes get frustrated with the police because we would call them up and they'd say, there's someone here and we know he's up to no good. And the police would say, we can't do anything until they do something. And we're like, but we know they're going to do something. Why can't you arrest them before they do something? That is being driven by fear. That's preemption. And it is not biblical. It is not Christian. The Archbishop of Westminster put it this way, we should not surrender to a logic of fear. That's a wonderful way to put it. The third shadow virtue is accumulation. Another way in which the ethic of safety distorts our perceptions is that it tempts us to accumulate more and more in order to prevent any future misfortune. I want to be safe in the future, therefore I will accumulate all that I can now. People are afraid of losing their jobs, and I think with good reason. People fear that Social Security will not be there when they retire. People fear that their health care benefits will not be sufficient to cover expensive treatments or long-term care. As a result, people come to believe that the more they have, the less they have to fear. So the way they deal with their fear is simply to get more and more stuff. Now, Let's be, let's be clear. And biblically, we may accumulate as an act of prudence. Okay? But trying to secure ourselves against this uncertain future would be the right thing to do if there were no God. If God did not exist and you want to be safe for the future, then by all means, accumulate all that you can now so that you can be safe and secure. But God is there. And fear should not drive us. We need to be careful that we don't deceive ourselves and say, well, this is not, this is not greed. This is wise financial planning. And again, it may be. Let's stop and consider. We are told by different people that we need X amount of money to retire comfortably. In this statement is a subtle threat that if you don't have X amount of money, you need to be afraid because you will not be comfortable in the future. In the Lord's Prayer, we hear the words, give us this day our daily bread. Do we pray this? Better yet, do we believe this? Or are we driven by fear, contrary to the teachings of Jesus? In the passage after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 9, we hear, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Will we follow the first part, daily bread, or the second, storing up treasures? One is marked by trust. 
the other by fear. Fear and the insecurity of letting go of what we have now to give to those who are in need. Now is the call. Fear keeps us our hands closed, but generosity and being followers of Jesus should open our hands to help those who are in need. That in fact, somebody's daily bread may come as a result of my opening my hands. But fear, in fact, will tell me to close my hands and to hold on to what I have to make sure that I have enough tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. Excessive fearfulness can make us incapable of being vulnerable. Well, imagining that we are invulnerable. And as a result, on some level, we become incapable of receiving God's gift every day, our daily bread, because we're so uptight, we're so fearful that we cannot recognize that God will take care of me as he has done all along. So is fear an emotion or is it a mental state or is it, as I've suggested, a moral issue? I would say yes to all three. But remember that ethics should not begin with what is right and what is wrong, but what is happening. Is this God's world and is he in fact in control? In order to live well as God's people and as followers of Jesus, we need to know how God is involved in history. At this point, I can't help but wonder if some of you are thinking, aha, the answer is I need to be fearless. As a follower of Jesus, I, I should be fearless. No. And the Lord willing, this is what we will look at next week. Let's pray together. Father, in the same way that fish swim in water, tend not to recognize that, I think we swim in fear. We are surrounded by it on every hand. And the command to do not be afraid. We hear it, and I don't know that we take it to heart. It seems so difficult. May we see that fear is not simply an emotion. It is that, but not simply that. Or a mental state, though it is that. It is a moral issue. And as your people, as followers of your son, we are to form and reform our passions and our emotions. And it begins by recognizing that this is your world. You are the creator and sustainer of all things. That you have a plan, a purpose, And you're in control. And so we should not go along with the culture, the culture of fear. We should not make safety our highest goal, the highest good that we could seek. But in the words of Jesus, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul. And we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. But if we are driven by suspicion, I, I think we will not love our neighbors as we should. 
And if we are driven by preemption, we will not love our neighbors. And if accumulation is what drives us, we will be tight-fisted and not share with those who are in need. I ask that in the days to come, we would think about these things. What it means to be a follower of Jesus. To heed the command, do not be afraid, while living in a culture of fear. I thank you for this time that we could gather today to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.